from Utah Public Radio. This is Undisciplined Science News Roundup. This week on the show, we are talking about the science behind Hurricane Dorian, a rat apocalypse, a new human ancestor, and poison dart frogs. Everybody on the show is an expert in something, but none of them is an expert in any of those things. It's the Undisciplined Science News Roundup coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Once a month on this program, we gather together an interdisciplinary group of scientists and science communicators to talk about some of the biggest stories in science, research, and exploration. We've been doing this once a month since the start of the year, and it's been such a joy, in no small part because the perspectives that are brought to these discussions from so many different research perspectives are always so eye-opening. We've got two newcomers in studio with us this month. Saviz Safarian is an associate professor of physics and astronomy, but in true interdisciplinary fashion, he's also an adjunct assistant professor of biological sciences at the University of Utah. Saviz, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. And also in studio with us is Rodrigo Noriega. He's an assistant professor of physical and material chemistry, also at the University of Utah, with a research agenda focused on macromolecular materials. Rodrigo, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for the invitation, Matt. And with us on the line is Susan Matt. She is a social and cultural historian, and she last joined us for a program we broadcast in early August to talk about a recent book called Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid, Changing Feelings About Technology from the Telegraph to Twitter. Susan, thanks for coming on the Science Roundup. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, joining us on the line from Boulder, Colorado, where she is a doctoral candidate working on the diversity of El Nino events and vying for most frequent guest status here on Undisciplined is Danielle Lemon. Danielle, welcome back. It's great to be here again. Thanks. Okay, so we've got a physicist slash astronomer slash biologist. We've got a macromolecular chemist. We've got a social and cultural historian, and we have a climate scientist. So, of course, let's start this month's program by talking about rats. The Atlantic magazine produced a great video this month about New Zealand's rat apocalypse, featuring my favorite science writer Ed Yong talking about that nation's efforts to rid the entire country of non-native mammals and in particular all of those rats. One of the technologies that's being explored is gene drive. That's genetic manipulation that would send a killer gene down the line that could eradicate rats across the island. This is a technology that has been explored for malaria-carrying mosquitoes before, but to my knowledge, nobody has talked about doing it in rats up until now. So, guys, let's talk about the implications here. What do you think? So CRISPR has a lot of off-target effects, and one would wonder, you know, what would evolution and the drive for survival do with something like CRISPR out in the population of the rats? And where would that stuff end up? In one end, you know, there are some ethical issues that really kind of begs the attention. In the other end, is is exciting to see the technology suddenly jump over the past couple of years to suddenly reshaping populations. It really signifies our role in shaping the planet and uh, what are our responsibilities. And I don't think we even realize how much power we have at our fingertips right now. That said, I think that we need to apply the precautionary principle here. It's interesting because we as humans sort of wield technology, but we don't understand how the technologies that we're currently wielding have large-scale effects. 
So there are genetic engineers who advise against using gene drives for a problem like pest infestation because the widespread effects of, you know, those rats potentially going to other parts of the globe and causing ecological catastrophe are, you know, not trivial. Because rats play a long-standing ecological niche in a lot of places. Exactly. And I also think it's an example of somewhat techno-chauvinism, the idea that we often use technology as sort of a panacea to all of our world's problems when really there exist other solutions out there. So while the rats are a widespread problem on New Zealand, it is kind of doing the nuclear option to use CRISPR. We can think of this from two different perspectives, and one is from the science of it and being excited about the process in which science can be made into a usable technology, but also grappling with the fact that we need to think about the permanency of the consequences of things that we do. It's not just necessarily the scale, but the time scale, not just about what happens now, but how long-lasting the effects of decisions that we take can be. Given that the rats have been there since the 13th century, which is something I found really intriguing, assumed to have come over on canoes, I in no way am defending the rats, but it's not like a 50-year niche there. It's, you know, an 8th century niche there. And so I think we may find it hard to fathom what the consequences are going to be by eliminating them all of a sudden through CRISPR means. And Susan, you are a historian who studies the uh, way that technology shapes human society. We often don't predict very well how new technologies will impact our world, right? Right. And unintended consequences are so widespread. And I, I think we also, you know, we should recognize that mousetraps are technologies and canoes are technologies. So it's not just that the CRISPR process may be a technological fix to this. There are other technologies that are perhaps better tested, whose consequences are already known, which may have less immediate effects than CRISPR, but might be a, an incremental way to solve the problem. I think another thing that we also have to mention here is that there's somewhat of a myth of restoration conservation, that, you know, the world at once was uh, pristine and natural, and if we can only return to that, if we can only get rid of the thing that we introduced and get back to what it used to be like, there is no going back towards a natural, pristine environment. So I think that when we perpetuate that idea, we come up with these solutions like CRISPR that are, you know, we're a little bit in, you know, too big for our britches with, and it, you know, and using CRISPR. But going back, right? I mean, um, uh, CRISPR is, is uh, something that's not at all about returning to the past. It's a, a fundamental alteration uh, to biology. And I also think, you know, uh, bird species are indeed endangered, native bird species in New Zealand, but they also have presumably done some evolutionary work in the last 800 years that have allowed them to adapt and survive. And it sounds like things are reaching a crisis point uh, in the rat-bird balance, but there are also some natural processes going on that we may not always be able to detect. A lot of times with technologies, we talk about regulation and we have come from a hundred years where a lot of the industrial technologies made have been pretty expensive, pretty technologically advanced. It was very hard to make. CRISPR and these new biological technologies are easy. 
you can generate these off in an island under the radar. You know, there, there are things that are very hard to regulate. And so how do we actually talk about these is, you know, like if you we, if we actually just become too defensive about it, it just drives it underground. You know, an example of that is the CRISPR baby that was born in, in China that is HIV resistant. I mean, that stuff is, is amazing. I know that a lot of scientists in China are also, you know, worried about it. I mean, we all are worried about it, but it just points to the availability of this technology. Maybe we should just study it faster and try to find out what the consequences are as fast as we are progressing to just basically highlight it. I think it's going to be really hard to regulate this internationally over the course of the next 20 years. I recently ordered a CRISPR lab for my home. You can order, yeah, everybody in the studio is looking at me with these big eyes. I have a CRISPR lab ready to be set up in my basement. I'm terrified by this. <laughs> I'm terrified for, by, by you having it. <laughs> my wife is too. <laughs> Let's move from New Zealand to Ethiopia, where a chance encounter on a goat pen has produced a one-of-a-kind fossil, the nearly complete skull of a human ancestor from about 3.8 million years ago. You guys, last time I was in Ethiopia, I visited Lucy, the world's most famous fossil probably. She's in the National Museum of Ethiopia. To put this into context, Lucy is thought to be only about 3.2 million years old. So this is an extra 600,000 years or so. And not only that, but this skull that was recently announced as having been discovered not too far away was nearly intact, which is just, uh, just wow. One of the issues that are mentioned here is the reproducibility kind that scientists in other fields may not appreciate, right? Somebody in my field might be like, well, that's a, a sample size of one. How can you drive conclusions out of that? But you have to put on the right optics in place so that you, you're thinking about something that is almost four million years old, and you're not going to find those uh, in large numbers, right? So you have to be able to extract usable information from this, and there are protocols in, in place to do this. Another thing that I found really exciting is to notice that um, a few years ago, some overlap between the teams that discovered another previously unknown fossil in the same area in Ethiopia. That overlap I found the most intriguing part of the discovery as well, because I think we used to imagine history and paleoarchaeology as sort of this simple line, right? And some thing, someone dies off and somebody immediately carries evolved and picks up the mantle and moves on. And you can look at these 19th century timelines of human history, and they don't have much complexity of people coexisting or species coexisting. Evolution was just one straight line. And so that overlap is really intriguing. You know, to me, this really kind of highlights the arc of our evolution and the fact that, you know, we are finding these fossils and kind of cementing the idea that we all came from Africa and we spread around and the modern humans have been around 75,000, 80,000 years is nothing. And where are we going? You know, and you're thinking about uh, crispering the planet and changing the environment. And we have already done that by the Industrial Revolution. I think that we are at this extremely exciting scientific time where we can actually view our past and see where we came from and gather evidence for it. And it's just, it's just unbelievable to put a timeline into it, basically. 
Did you guys see the recreation? The thing that struck me is how little we've changed. I mean, I know we're like much bigger now and our brains are bigger and all of this and our faces are different shape, but you look at this recreation and I know part of it is art and part of it is science and maybe it's a little more art than science, but I just see another human being. Like in all of that time, we haven't all really changed that much, at least in terms of the structural components of our faces and our bodies. I mean, and it's not just that you see another human being. The one thing that kind of was noteworthy to me was that this specimen, as the article put it, they took their final steps and were swept into the river delta. And so basically, we get this incredible specimen that was fossilized because they slipped and fell. How could something be more human than that? Let's move now from Africa to South America, where researchers devised a pretty clever series of experiments to understand how the color and the taste and the toxicity of prey species interact to impact predation of that species. First, what they did is they set out 2,000 clay models of frogs. Some were white stripes, some yellow stripes, some solid colored. And they wanted to see how birds reacted. They made these so that the birds could take little nips out of them. And then they counted the nips to see which ones were being preyed on the most. Then they went on to train some chicks in a lab to associate color with taste. And then they mixed oats with extracts of the frog skin and fed them to chickens to measure the noxious effects of each one. And really, long story short, they decided that, yeah, all of these things can impact predation. But simple behavioral changes on the parts of the frogs that seem to have fewer evolutionary advantages could negate all the protective qualities of pretty big evolutionary steps. If the frogs just hid a little more, it didn't matter if they were toxic, and it didn't matter what color they were, and it didn't matter how they tasted. What do you guys think about this? I really relate a lot with the yellow-striped frogs in that I feel like their yellowness is basically just resting bee face because they sit out in the middle of the forest, according to one of the scientists on the study. I can't help but wonder if the yellow frog just sitting out in the middle of the forest, it's like a power move. This study says, yeah, physical evolution is a very powerful force when it comes to survival, but behavioral evolution, which takes a lot less time, It can be just as powerful, and I'm wondering what you think maybe the lessons for our species might be in this, particularly in a time in which we've done some things to our Earth that have fundamentally altered our previous niche. So often you hear arguments that seem to suggest that our biology is our destiny, and this certainly gives the possibility for more agency, whether it's frog agency or human agency, and that it's not just our DNA that drives us to do things, but there's some element, maybe we call it free will, maybe we call it froggy behavior, um, but that we aren't just predetermined by our biology. Some of us under a lot more evolutionary pressure than the others, and right now, we as a species are not under any evolutionary pressure. If anything, you know, if you think about, think back, we probably stopped evolving about 20,000 years ago because our evolution really stopped when a tribe of hunter-gatherers would completely die over the winter if the matriarch or the patriarch made a wrong decision in the summer. Um, That is evolutionary pressure. We don't have those anymore. And there are some species on the planet that don't have those anymore. Really, for evolution to kick in biologically, you really need to apply that pressure that then drives the process forward. And not all the time that pressure is on. So we are now just basically exploring all the different possibilities within our species because we are not under that kind of pressure. 
Wow. So really, like, our survival is up to us right now. We can't count on Mother Nature. One more thing to consider is that, yes, there is a biological aspect to this evolutionary advantage that yellow frogs have over white frogs in this situation. But then also that can be overcome or negated by having a, a behavioral advantage as well. But when we're thinking about things like this, it's important to consider the diversity of effects that come into play in such a complex environment where so many variables are coming into play at once. That is not just for when we plan how we act as humans and take lessons from nature like that, but also when we're studying uh, science like this and thinking about a reductionist approach where we're trying to hone in on one variable and isolate it from everything else. That's important a lot of the time so that we can have very good insights about the effect of that variable. But then we also have to zoom out and understand how that one variable plays in the context of everything else in the problem that you're trying to understand. Let's move north to the North Atlantic Ocean where Hurricane Dorian at Category 5 strength stalled over the Bahamas for more than 40 hours. This appears to be coming more common as a behavior for hurricanes. And it's coming at the same time that we are setting new records for the number of Category 5 hurricanes in the Atlantic. Rodrigo, before the show today, you were telling me that you have been in a hurricane for a couple of hours before. Let, let's start there. Well, yes, that, that is correct. When I was back home visiting my family in Mexico a few years ago, uh, there was a hurricane that is not common to hit my hometown, but it did, and it was only for a couple of hours that we had crazy rain and crazy wind, and I cannot understand how people would make it through 40 hours of that. It's really quite terrifying. Danielle, you understand climate patterns and how they impact our changing world of weather. What does it mean to you when we hear something like stronger hurricanes, more hurricanes, hurricanes that stall out over land for longer periods of time? Hurricanes are actually quite a tricky subject for climate scientists. Um, hurricane costs are escalating, but there's not a ton of evidence to suggest that it's due to climate change. It's more driven by extreme development in coastal areas. So while that is true, it is also true that the ocean has absorbed a lot of the heat from global warming, and hurricanes thrive on that heat. You need heat in order to have a hurricane. And so if you have the speed that the tropical cyclone is moving and it's very slow over warm water, that sort of builds up a lot of heat and energy. And if you have that amount of strength in a hurricane, I can imagine that, you know, as it makes landfall, it sort of has more momentum behind it to create a lot of damage. That said, current data sets indicate that there is no significant observed trends in global tropical cyclone frequency over the past century. It's really interesting because through the 90s and the early 2000s, we didn't have that many hurricanes and it was a blip. And then now we are seeing a lot of hurricanes and it does kind of bring our minds to climate change. And while climate change is exacerbating the problem, it's not necessarily driving the damage so this is one of those things that we're doing to ourselves. I mean, like we're developing on coastlines. Everybody wants to live on the coast. It's so beautiful. But the more people that we have on the coast, the more development that we have. 
construction methods really impact what kind of damages that we're going to have? And I guess whether or not they are increasing in frequency, our presence on the coast makes the damages to us all the greater. There was an article that said Hurricane Dorian was a climate injustice. And it's just that around hurricanes, we have to be really careful about our messaging. As I and other scientists have put it, you can't attribute any single weather disaster to climate change. And while it's a good time to talk about climate change because it's highly impactful, we have to be accurate in um, the things that we attribute to climate change or else it leads to more misinformation, more people misunderstanding what climate change is really about. More instances in which you have Congress members taking, you know, a snowball in the middle of a session and saying climate change doesn't exist. That example is really important because, you know, what climate change deniers do is they say, oh, look, there can't be climate change because it's winter in New York and it was a really cold winter in New York. So what's this global warming thing? And what they're doing is they're taking a weather event and attributing it to no climate change. You can't contrast that. You can't argue that by taking a singular weather event and attributing it to climate change. Climate can only be viewed in the long term. To me, it looks like a lot of our understanding of what happens around us is rooted in equilibrium issues. Like we can't predict the climate. We can't predict the weather. It's a multifaceted problem. You can't really look at the planet as a steady thing. The planet is constantly, the climate is constantly churning everything on the planet. And that churning actually drives a lot of biology and a lot of issues. So as we impact that engine, everything is going to be impacted. And it's extremely scary because we have no idea what depends on what. And you couple that with the fact that we are going to live a lot longer these days with the CRISPR and being bionic and having replacement parts and all of that. We are all in for a long drive into this some weird stuff happening on the planet. So it really kind of puts it in perspective. And I agree that, you know, one hurricane cannot really say much. But, you know, when you look at the polar ice cap, when you look at the temperatures around the world, it really creates a scary scenario. In the time we have left today, I wanted to know what research-related study or news caught your eye this month that might not have gotten as much attention as you wish it had. Danielle, let's start with you. I actually want to talk a little bit about the climate crisis because it is my field. Towards the end of August, Greenland's ice sheet lost 11 billion tons of ice in one day. It's the equivalent of 4.4 million Olympic pools. Um, And because it's land-based ice and the second largest ice sheet in the world, it plays a big role in determining global sea level. We have a lot of signs that the climate crisis is worsening, and I just want to bring attention mainly to uh, Greta Thunberg, who has been traveling the U.S. She gave a testimony to the Senate Climate Task Force and submitted a UN IPCC report, and she basically said, "Um, I'm submitting this report because I don't want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to climate scientists. I think that we really need to listen to our youth activists who might be our only hope. Susan. On a somewhat lighter note, I like the discovery reported in the New Scientist that you can tell where a whale has traveled from the themes in its songs. Researchers in the South Pacific tracked three different groups of whales and found that they traded songs as they migrated and that their songs changed over time, which points to the idea of whale culture, which I find most appealing. Savid? 
really what caught my eye was this idea of phase transitions. So this is this is kind of like a little bit of an obscure idea, you know, how things organize within within cells. You know, the way we have always looked at this is that we have always tried to look at it with uh, these models that are driven by a lot of molecules doing a lot of independent things. And more and more when we look inside the cell, we see that the molecules actually do some really weird things together, but not exactly together. And that stuff seems to be driving chromatin remodeling. And there has been a string of publications along these lines that kind of brings the molecules in a particular geometry to do something that we don't completely understand. And um, there's an article on Biophysical Journal in September that kind of highlights that on chromatin remodeling. And it basically tells me that, you know, there is a lot in biology that we just don't understand in a fundamental way. And it's really exciting at the same time just to be able to see these things. And Rodrigo? The study that I wanted to highlight was something that kind of touches on a lot of the things we discussed today and has to do with the very, very early origins of life and how heated gas bubbles inside volcanic rock vents could have provided the environment where on the surface of those bubbles, biopolymers could have accumulated and created the conditions where the very early stages of macromolecular evolution could have happened. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave the discussion there. Susan, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Danielle Lemon, it's great to have you back. Of course. Always great to be here. Saviz Safarian, what a pleasure it's been. I hope you'll come back and join us again. Thank you so much for having me. And Rodrigo Noriega, we'd love to have you back as well. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it as well. We broadcast Undiscipline every Friday on Utah Public Radio, but if you miss us there or you live outside of Utah, you can catch us wherever you get your podcasts. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio, and we recorded today's episode from the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. The scientific studies and stories we discussed today were selected by our associate producer, Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>